This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time, uh, and those people that chose time over money, they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And uh, the researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, um, but it's not the time that's going to just make you happier. It's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love, right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, if all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other, whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this? Or why are my kids like this? And that's where my head goes. Eventually, that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings, If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And and, Because remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, Another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it and in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time in their lives and for, for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body, right? So it, it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's So careful of your excuses because nobody buys them anyway except you. <laughs> And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simp- it's a time management book is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent. Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your, your device, you will look down at those text messages. But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. 
All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday. We're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the, the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example... Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's and hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate and came out where the people are. And you were out there with – you were out there and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a, in a conversation. I know. It was like a real conversation. It was... It was like the first time, I think, in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I... Are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like, I'm just wondering, are you sick? Um, was there... Did you need a ride? It's terminal. <laughs> so but... were, you, were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally, you don't talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for a ride, but they all said no. So I thought I'd just... Yeah. Keep talking to let me them. Just, let me just tell you. If you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he? You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars. Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart B is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. (laughs) You're a baby. Um, Like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. 
In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer. Are you kidding? A rocker and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the, you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsource. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream maker. I mean, how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream? Yeah, but it's it's an art form, man. Like, I know what would happen, though, is the robot would come buy your ice cream. I would like to buy some ice cream, and it would buy your ice cream. It would then take your recipe, and then the robot makes your recipe. Boom! You're out of business. Anyway, I'm just trying to help you. Make sure you focus on it. Get the right product. Don't sell to robots. Don't. Got it. <laughs> mental note don't sell the robots that's the coach's corner folks fairly basic stuff eh we'll be right back welcome back friends to the matt townsend show you know if you've watched any sporting event from the Super Bowl to the current NCAA basketball tournament, NASCAR races, the Olympics, you name it, and you have seen some seriously aggressive sponsorship from the leading beverage companies, namely Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. Numerous athletes are spokespeople for these products, and it just strikes, you know, as a bit odd, right? Because here are some of the healthiest people we know, and then they just, you know, after a good workout, just throw back a... Coca-Cola, a sugary beverage. Um, it seems like it doesn't quite jive, especially when we when we already know that uh, all of that sugar and, and some of the things that are in these drinks lead to other health challenges like obesity, diabetes, and poor dental hygiene. So why are sporting events and athletes, um, you know, so into pitching these products? And, uh, and what is really going on that keeps perpetuating and driving this industry when we know that there are so many health risks involved. Well, our next guest, Dr. Marion Nestle, joins us. She's on the phone from New York City and tells us more about the business and threat of the big beverage industry and what it poses on our nation's health. She wrote the book Soda Politics, Taking on Soda and Winning, and we're honored to have her with us. Dr. Marion Nestle, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, glad to be here, but it's Nestle, not Oh, Nestle. sorry, Nestle. I, I just I'm keep thinking related. of the drink. That's right. A little hot chocolate is big. Hey, uh, not, ta- related. Not, not related to Nestle, are you, Nestle? Hey, um, Dr. Nestle, tell us about your, your – this really is kind of a mission for you, right? You've taken on health issues in general, 
But uh, the soda industry seems to be one of your particular favorites to focus on. Well, I've just written a book about it, so that's why. And the reason is that sugary drinks are a really easy target for public health advocates, which is what what I am. I'm interested in public health um, because the drinks are sugars and water and nothing else and some flavoring, but nothing of any redeeming nutritional value. And people consume them in very, very large amounts. In small amounts, they're not a problem, but in large amounts, they are a problem. Um, The amount of sugar that's in them is staggering. It's just under a teaspoon of sugar per ounce. Mm. Um, And if you have a 10 or if you have a 12-ounce drink, you're consuming 10 teaspoons of sugar just like that. Wow. I mean, that's, that's more than sugary cereal, isn't it? Oh, much more. Wow. And, and I mean, so that's, but that's just the sugar side. The diet beverages have salt off the chart, don't they? Salt? Yeah, sodium. No, no, very little. Oh, I thought they were higher in sodium, and that's what no. was causing no. other issues. But when you think about the industry, the industry is is something that you've kind of focused closely to in how they market and their practices. I think you compared it uh, much to some of the practices of the tobacco companies. Well, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that a sugary drink has become a worldwide icon of America. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an, it's an astounding marketing story, and it's a story that's been told over and over and over again. Uh, the company is um, Coca-Cola particularly is brilliant at marketing um, and have made these drinks something that seems essential for sports figures, as you've pointed out. They pay sports figures to represent the product, um, and they market worldwide, and yet it's something that Again, if it's consumed in very small amounts, it's just not a problem. We're not going to worry about it at all. But it's when people are drinking liters every day or quarts every day that it becomes a real problem. It adds a lot of calories, and that much sugar coming into the body so quickly is really not good for you. Small amounts, fine. Hmm. And, and, and as a health advocate, um, you probably... I mean, the marketing is extraordinary just in and of itself. So if you're a business kind of marketing major, like, that's brilliant. But one of the things you bring up, too, it seems like, is uh, who they're targeting. And the beverage industry might be, you know, kind of about race and class in its targeting, even targeting, you know, working class or, or poor minority communities. Well, that's certainly happened over the years uh, when – you want to market to the people who are going to drink your products. And as health advocacy has become more prominent, particularly in concerns about obesity and its consequences in type 2 diabetes, the people who are educated and have money are not drinking these products to the extent that they used to be. So the marketing has shifted towards people with less money and less education. And, of course, these are exactly the groups that have the highest prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes and those other problems. So the, the marketing of uh, soft drinks to low-income minorities has a very, very long and complicated history. And, in fact, I called the chapter in my book uh, Marketing to African-American and Hispanic Americans, a complicated story, Mm. um, because 
minority groups were petitioned the companies and had sit-ins and demonstrations in order to get the companies to hire them. Oh, wow. And to, and to advertise in their publications in the 1950s. And over the years, the companies forged very close relationships, financial relationships, with um, community groups um, of the minority communities and uh, so that they are seen as an ally. Um, and it's only in recent years when obesity and its consequences have become such a problem wow. that things have had to shift. It's complicated. And it really is. Um, it's almost kind of par for the course because it seems like there's a re- there's such a profound history of these of these beverages and the companies that are entrenched in our life so much that the, the storyline becomes like Coca-Cola is Americana. And uh, I mean, I can only imagine if you grew up in the 50s with African-American communities fighting to get jobs at Coca-Cola and then they finally get the jobs and then all of a sudden they become targets of uh, Coca-Cola. I mean, it really is a it's it's a tangled web, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not something that's simple and it requires a great deal of uh, skill to try to figure and sensitivity to try to figure out how to deal with it. And we saw this in New York when Mayor Michael Bloomberg attempted to put a cap on the size mm-hmm. of sugary drinks that could be sold in New York City. Um, and the, uh, Af- the major African-American and Hispanic community groups and organizations opposed what he was trying to do and supported the soda industry in its lawsuits against the city. Hmm. And it wasn't for until a couple of years later um, the, when there had been some organizing around that that other groups came in and said, oh, no, this isn't a good idea. These companies are targeting us and are contributing to the illness in our communities. Wow. That is so – it's so interesting. Um, when One of the things as you bring up the New York uh, kind of marketing or the campaign against these drinks, one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing that worked was when you just very simply delineated how much walking or and, and, and stated how much you're going to have to do to work off that 12-ounce drink. Yeah, this was a subway – poster campaign where they had big posters in the subway that said if you wanted to work off the calories in a 20-ounce soda, you would have to walk from Union Square to Brooklyn, which is about (laughs) three miles. Just Um, to get rid of that sugar. Yeah, and and that's – most people don't do that. Even in New York, most people don't do that much walking. Yeah. So the idea that physical activity can burn off excess calories is something that – doesn't work very well unless you're enormously physically active. And that's really, I guess, as, as a health advocate, you're trying to figure out a way to educate the population about it. Um, and, and is it working? Do you sense that your, your, um, your, your war or your fight to make it healthier um, or to push on the soda companies, is it, are you seeing any give? Are you seeing any change? Well, you do in the educated, uh, wealthier segments of the population, um, where obesity, the, the prevalence of obesity is, is not that all that high and is leveling off, and you're not seeing so many increases, where 
um, the obesity is an increasing problem is in people who are already overweight and don't have much money and don't live in areas where healthy food is available. And so it's become kind of class-based. It's, um, you know, one of those things where what you really want to do if you're doing health advocacy is to try to get into low-income communities and make it possible for people to buy food that's healthier for them. Uh, healthier food is more expensive than, yeah. um, than junk food. It, it is for lots and lots of reasons. And when people who don't have a lot of money complain that they can't afford to buy fruits and vegetables because they cost so much, they're right. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes even in their communities, they may not have the stores. They may just have like kind of the little fast food stores, not the, the full markets where there might be better options. Right, and the places that are where food is available tend to sell junk food that doesn't have to be refrigerated, that yeah. can sit on a shelf for a long time, and that doesn't cost very much and tastes good. Hmm. Is, is the industry uh, succeed, is striving? Is it growing, uh, the beverage industry, or is it shrinking? It seems like we have more people drinking water, talking about water, or other healthier drinks. Well, soda companies... Uh, also produce bottled water and many, many other kinds of drinks. The uh, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo both produce about 200 different kinds of beverages, um, you know, just hundreds of options. Um, and so they're pushing the less sugary options, and they're also heavily promoting the smaller cans. Well, I can't argue against either of those. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, those are both healthier choices. Um, and then what they're really doing is shifting their marketing overseas as Americans have reduced their consumption of sugary beverages down by about 25% over the last 10 or 15 wow. years. Uh, the marketing has moved overseas. Um, and these companies are looking at Asia, India, and Africa where where the consumption of sugary beverages is extremely low as enormous growth opportunities mm. and they're putting literally billions of dollars every year into marketing and building bottling plants and doing things in those countries wow yeah hey good luck to the rest of the world as the battles coming to them let's take a break uh we're speaking with dr marion nessel who is the author of the book soda politics taking a uh, taking on big soda and winning she's just walking us through a lot of her work her history um as a health advocate and is is teaching us uh what's really going on in the soda industry and some things we need to pay attention to we'll be right back folks this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking with uh, Dr. Marion Nessel, who is the author of Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. She is a health advocate, uh, leading health advocate for better food safety in the United States. She's also a professor of sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. She was a professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health 
at uh, New York University um, from 1988 to 2003. Dr. Nessel, welcome back to the show, and thanks for being with us. Hi, and I'm still at NYU. Oh, are you still there? Yeah, I chaired the department from 1988 to 2003. Now I'm just a professor, but I'm still there. But you're a busy, you're a busy woman. Uh, yes, we I got. Am. You know what? It's and, and I think you're. It's busy in a good way because we're taking on um, uh, the beverage companies, big soda, and, and in in a way, I mean, I guess you've, you're an educator. You just your goal, I guess, is to just give people better tools to to lead a healthier life. Yeah, I just think if people, I think healthy diets are easy. All you have to do is eat your veggies and not eat too much and don't eat too much junk food. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I really love to eat. I enjoy food. I think food is one of life's greatest pleasures. And I want everyone to be able to enjoy their food and not have it make them get sick. Yeah. And, and um, I guess that's part of this is a lot of us just kind of go on autopilot and just take whatever's there and, and you know, believe whatever is being offered. But these companies, they don't just even sell soda. They also sell snacks. And the, oh, no. the snacks and the soda kind of go hand in hand. Well, they certainly do. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, PepsiCo is much better protected from concerns about sugary drink consumption because it makes lots of other products. Mm-hmm. It owns Lay's, for example. So it makes potato chips and snack products and cereals and other kinds of things. Um, it's a bigger problem for Coca-Cola, which only markets drinks. Does um, What's happening with these energy drinks? We see uh, the kids, it's a big kind of push, all these energy drinks. It obviously is also marketed, it seems like, to younger people in a way that it just it's all the cool stuff. It's, it's all the extreme sports. Uh, what's the energy drink world? What's it doing on, on our health and the impact to the bottom line of these companies? Well, it, the sales of energy drinks are increasing, and they're being marketed heavily, uh, and particularly to young men. Um, who are the targets for a lot of advertising of products that aren't particularly healthy. Uh, But the sales of energy drinks have not compensated totally for the decline in sales of the standard Hmm. Coke and Pepsi. Um, but they're but they're rising, and a lot of people are really concerned about them. Not because of the sugar so much; they have somewhat less sugar, um, but they have an awful lot of caffeine. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a whole other side of the beverage industry is the caffeine side. Is is it was the caffeine uh, an attempt to create a hook? Well, you know, they started out with cocaine. Yeah, but that was a so, very very long time ago. But so it has and gotten that, better, Marion. And, oh, it's gotten better, yeah. Um, and there's very little caffeine in either Coke or Pepsi. Mm. There's, there's a little bit, but very, very little. Um, so it's it's really not a problem. The only thing that's a problem in these drinks that really matters is the sugar. And again, it's just because there's so much of it. Um, the It's funny, I, I spent the last couple of months on a research project in Australia, and while I was there, the head of Coke. Australian for Australia and New Zealand made a statement that um, she didn't really understand what the problem was. If you had one can of uh, Coca-Cola a week, there was nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally agree. Yeah, right. I mean, but I guess that's that's different than 
you know, a family, an inner city family that has five, each person has five a day because that's all yeah. they're drinking. Or young men in general who are the target audience for a lot of this, mm-hmm. who are drinking um, a couple of quarts of this stuff a day. Mm. Not a good idea. Well, and, and maybe the motives are, are a little bit um, suspect simply because of the history where, I mean, just a few years ago, there was a big scandal about these companies, you know, paying researchers to validate the healthiness of these things or the lack of health issues. Yes, that's a, another big issue of mine and, um, and something that concerns me a lot is when food companies are sponsoring research to give them the kinds of results that they can use in marketing. And the beverage companies over the last several years have um, sponsored research to demonstrate that sodas have no impact on health, that the major nutritional surveys in the United States that show that sodas are associated with poor health uh, are so badly flawed that you don't need to pay Mm. attention to them. And then in particular, and the one that has gotten the most publicity, is the research to indicate that you don't have to worry about what you eat. It's how active you are that counts. Mm. Yeah, right. It's just more about how much exercising you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm greatly in favor of physical activity. I think everybody would be healthier being more active. Uh, but it's really, really difficult to work off the calories in, that, are, that are in excess uh, because the way I think of it is it's about 100 calories a mile. So you have to walk or run a mile for every 100 calories of food that you take in mm. to, balance, to balance it off. And for a lot of people, that's really a lot. Oh, for sure. Um, you uh, that is so that's what worries you is if they're going to kind of skew the research and then use that to misinform then that becomes even more egregious more more of a problem yeah and these companies spend a lot of money on this research i mean coca-cola to its credit has um it started an transparency initiative in which it is now revealed publicly the names of all of the organizations and individuals that it funds. Hmm. And that has um, created a lot of response, and some of these organizations are pulling out. Yeah. They were happy to take money from Coca-Cola when they didn't have to disclose it. Now they're... They're, not, they're not so happy about it when it's been disclosed for them. Um, and it's not clear to me how all of this is going to play out. But I give Coca-Cola a lot of credit for uh, taking this initiative and following through on it. Are, are they – in the end, do you – I mean, I know there was a comparison to like big tobacco. But it seems like they might be uh, still a better community support than tobacco was. Well, I'm not I'm not sure what you're asking, but the uh, I mean obviously sodas are not tobacco because you can consume them in small amounts and they don't make any difference. Um I'm not sure that's the case with tobacco and the level of addiction is certainly quite different. But the marketing and the protection of sales is very very similar. So the tobacco industry um began by attacking the science and trying to get it to, to develop its own science, it uh, 
sponsored community organizations, lots and lots of arts organizations were sponsored by uh, tobacco companies. And then it worked behind the scenes to lobby against any kind of regulations of tobacco to make sure that the federal government didn't pass any laws that would reduce that would lead to reduced sales. Hmm. So, and the, I mean, all companies that are selling products do the same things, and soda companies do these things too. And yeah. in that ways, and in that way, there are similarities. In the article, um, uh, I think it was by NPR, you, you told a story about how you went to Coca-Cola's headquarters in Atlanta and you sat and watched a movie. Um, talk to us about your experience in, the, in their version of kind of uh, Coca-Cola and America, I guess it was. Oh, it was an extraordinary experience. Uh, this is Coca-Cola World in Atlanta, and um, you, it's their museum of Coca-Cola products, and there's a tasting room and a whole lot of other things, and a, an enormous gift shop. Hmm. Um, but the, before you can get into any of that, you are required to watch a, um, about a, a short video. And this video isn't anything about selling Coca-Cola directly. It's a video about family values and love and great moments in people's lives. And it was extraordinarily touching. Mm. Uh, There was a particularly touching vignette about a uh, soldier in Afghanistan who um, his family misses terribly, and they're at a ball game, and a picture of him comes up on the screen, and then he walks out. Hmm. And, you know, his family hasn't seen him in years. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Yeah, right. I mean, not one. It was just immensely touching. And so then you walk out of this video and you've been emotionally moved. Yeah. And then you're ready to start looking at Coca-Cola. Yeah, what, and what does that have to do with Coca-Cola? Well, at the end of it, they, they're drinking Coca-Cola, <laughs> but it's very low-key. But it, again, it's the it's back to the good feeling, love, family, America. And American, and American values. Mm-hmm. I mean, hmm. really deep American values. And they do that extraordinarily well. And then you get to go and look at the history of Coca-Cola and um, this big exhibit about the secret formula. And on the day that I was there, there was an enormous troop of Tibetan monks who were oh, going wow. through. So it was just a surreal <laughs> that experience. That was. And then you exit through the largest gift shop I've ever seen, and people are checking out with shopping carts full of Coca-Cola branded products. Holy cow. Well, I mean, um, I, it's got to be scary, saying, Marion, when you walk in to Coca-Cola, you'd think all of the the alarms would be going off and they would be <laughs> having security following you the entire time. Um, you would. They actually turn out to be the nicest people in the world. Mm, that's great. That's great. Well, we appreciate your insight. Um, anything, just as we leave, what's one thing that the rest of us, just everybody listening should take away? What's the one thing that if we all remember this interview would be the key thing to remember about soda and our health? A larger portions have more calories. That's all you got to know, huh? That's all you have to know. If you're going to be eating and drinking these things, keep the amount small. Yeah. Good job. Appreciate you. Dr. Marion Nessel, thank you for your time and your My insight. Pleasure. Wonderful, wonderful insight. Um, you know, it is. It's uh, moderation. Hello. <laughs> and eat your vegetables as she taught us. 
eat your vegetables, smaller portions, have one or two sodas a week. Watch out for the sugar. It's liquid candy. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get the information you need to live longer. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me – I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet, you, the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like Dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. 
He's never going to be a quarterback if he cannot run the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500-plus a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play. And uh, my wife, so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Oh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point... Do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not. Those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them? on what you really want out of sports. If it's, not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete. And uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team, and he was just incredible. And his junior year, when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members 
to save lives. And now they're running a race and they actually didn't win. Right. But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round uh, group that, that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles. And I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I could just tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with, with another person, make sure that you you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody – questions it. The media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the, the, the voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on health care that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? Because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listen to a out you know all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps, and you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting you know political arguments, or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about I think politics in general, you don't need to pile on. <laughs> ben loves a good pile on. Um, you don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your, your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner, you learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would I would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills. Because technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form, or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills, you're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Okay, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're, if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. Model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and – You caught one of your children having looked at pornography. Bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. 
Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women. How it changes how we see each other. And have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of we believe that we should have respect of each other. And that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also, model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, we're we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there. Right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would he would take him with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone, and then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels He's your younger brother and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connection. Show them what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if, if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling 
at some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years. You won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Paul Simon. Great tunage. Hey, are you a fact checker? According to Google, the search engine performs over 3.5 billion searches per day. That's about 40,000 searches per second. And our society has the ability to get answers to all sorts of weird questions. For example, from what's the name of those things on the end of my shoelaces? Um, those are called aglets, by the way. And, and to what the, what's the situation in Brussels? With all this information, one truly important question to consider, and one that you can't necessarily search out and get a great answer on, on Google, is this. What are we really learning? What are we learning with all of this information and information overload? Dr. David Weinberger is our guest today. He is the author of Too Big to Know, Rethinking Knowledge Now That the Facts Aren't the Facts, Experts are everywhere, and the smartest person in the room is the room. He now joins us live from Boston to talk to us about uh, this knowledge, uh, uh, the need to rethink knowledge. Dr. David Weinberger, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to have you on the show. Uh, this is, it is, it's true, it's overwhelming, right? We've never probably 
in the history of the world had more information at our fingertips, and yet information doesn't always equal wisdom or knowledge, does it? No. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure how overwhelming it is. Um, I'm not overwhelmed, and I doubt that you actually feel overwhelmed, and I bet that most of your listeners, except that we're constantly told that we're overwhelmed, mm. don't actually feel overwhelmed, because we go to the sites that we go to, we ask the questions that we want, that we want answers to. We have our, most of us, I think, at this point, have developed our ways in which we get our news and uh, have more extended discussions. I think a lot of times the the discussion about uh, the idea that we are overwhelmed, uh, uh, the concept of information uh, over being overwhelmed does have a little history, and in part it's, it's due to that, but I think it's also in part due to maybe focusing too much on facts, because uh, facts are not knowledge, as you say, um, and most of what we do on the net or that we do in our life, and this has always been the case, is, has nothing to do with gathering facts. We do that occasionally, and the Internet is fantastic at it. Right. The fact that you can get this information, you're carrying it around in your pocket on, on your phone, um, is is awesome, but that for me is really just the that's just the beginning. And to think that that what if you're looking for knowledge on that, that you should look at um, where we're gathering facts, I think does a disservice to to knowledge and to um, what's happening on the net. So what? I would look other places. Uh, you know, I would look at um, discussion forums. Um, uh, Stack Overflow. If you are a, if you're a developer, if you're a programmer, which is an amazing site that millions of developers go to, where you can ask a question and an anonymous community uh, gives answers. You know, uh, how do I do this in this or that programming language? Hmm. It's, a, it's an amazing resource, but it's not about fact. It's a little bit more about conversation and discussion. So um, there's so many sites like that, and that's where I think you can see a real change in what knowledge is um, occurring. And it seems like it's kind of a – it is flowing in a conversation. Um, I guess that's the – I guess the, the overwhelm that I see is when you go trying to research an idea um, I, or my kids are trying to research an idea and all of a sudden 35,000 sites come up or sources – to go find out information, and the first six of them are marketed. Um, how do we sort through the knowledge that matters, the information that matters? Uh, we are still figuring that out, and it is the and it is absolutely something that you have to, ch- children or none of us do naturally. Right. None of this is natural no. behavior. It never was right. I mean, so that's why we have schools, for example. Um, so we do have to be. Care, uh, thinking really carefully about uh, how we teach our children how to use this awesome and bewildering at times and dangerous at times resource. So, yeah. and, and so there's a lot of people thinking about that. Um, but there's also every site um, is maybe too much of a generalization, but not that much. I mean, every site has ways to guide you to the information that it wants you to to find. And if the site is on your side, then it's not giving you corrupt uh, information that somebody has paid them to promote. And, you know, Google and the search engines, the big search engines, um, do a pretty good job of marking um, the, the 
results that they're giving you that are, in fact, advertisements. Hmm. Uh, they do a pretty good job. Um, and there are sites that absolutely do want to fool you. I mean, you know, they give you information as if it weren't paid, and they get very, very good at doing that, unfortunately. Yeah. But how, you know, how, do, you fi- how do you find the information that's reliable is something that we need to learn, and we talk about this amongst ourselves all the time, and it should be a very active topic in every classroom at this point. Right. But it's also something that sites have been dealing with now for 20 years. How do we get the right information to our users? Um, uh, there's not an easy or single answer to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does you actually have a hierarchy that you mentioned, um, a data information knowledge wisdom hierarchy? Maybe walk us through that. What do you mean by that? Well, that's actually an idea that uh, that comes out of um, from the 1990s, and it's an idea I think I think is fundamentally wrong. So it's a hierarchy that if you go to business strategy meetings, you see put up on the board all the time, um, and. The, the idea, which I think is a wrong idea, the idea is that data is all of the data in the world, and then you refine the data, mm. you filter it, you get information, you refine the information, you get knowledge, you refine the knowledge, you get wisdom. And I think basically none of that is true. And the thing that's most – you can have all the information in the world and not have any knowledge, and you can have all the knowledge in the world, and you just, you just don't know it all. That's right. nothing to do with right. leading to wisdom. Um, for me, the, the really important way this goes wrong is it's – that's described as a pyramid with data at the bottom and wisdom at the top because you're filtering um, at each step. And that's how we had to do things when knowledge was communicated and preserved on paper. Paper is expensive. It's, it's bulky. Um, and so we've had over the, over the centuries, um, we've, we've pursued knowledge by having to filter out most of the stuff. Or very few manuscripts actually get published, and very few of those make it into a library. Just hmm. physically, you know, it's expensive, and the library would have to be the size of you know multiple football stadiums. So we've managed knowledge by reducing it, and now for the first time, and we've paid an enormous cost for doing that. I mean, obviously there are benefits, but we've paid a big price because all sorts of voices that should have been heard but didn't have access to the presses simply weren't heard. Right. I mean, uh, quick way to put it is, uh, you know, old white men basically decided in the West what we heard. Uh, Voices were squelched um, with good intentions by the old white men, but, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, And now we don't have, we don't have to do that. We don't have to filter on the way in. We don't have to reduce everything. So if if I'm a blogger, just a quick example, if I'm a blogger and I want to post my top ten list of great resources about economics, online, you know, whatever, or politics or, or anything, I can do that and I'll put in my links. But So I, I have filtered it. That's exactly what I've done, right? I've gone through the mass and I said, here are the ten that are really good. Right. But I haven't removed anything. It's not like a publisher who won't publish a manuscript and now you can't find it. That's the old type of filtering. On the Internet, we filter not out, but we filter forward. So when I put in those links, that list of 10, all I've done is shorten the number of clicks that it takes you to get to those 10. But the other million things I could have cited, they're still there. Mm-hmm. And you can find them in a search. You can find, you know, somebody else links to them. Yeah. So we no longer have to filter out. It's no longer a reductive idea of knowledge. It's an inclusive idea of knowledge. And I think that fundamentally changes everything. Oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? And um, the book, your book uh, that you co-authored, The Clue Train Manifesto, I mean, that, how, when did that come out? Ten years ago? Oh, <laughs> uh, 2000. Was, was it 2000? I remember reading that on an airplane 
because I had studied dialogue theory and the importance of communication and you know kind of group think, and I thought, holy cow, this is the turn of understanding. So, so maybe explain to us what 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 are the skills that we need in today's day and age to manage the flow of information and and the and really because like you were saying, it's almost a conversation that needs to be had. Um, through this process with other like-minded people in chat groups or or other groups. Maybe explain what are some of the tools that would help us facilitate our understanding better? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's, um, it's the big question. Yeah, huge so, question. Um, for one thing, the um, recognizing the importance of conversation is a way in which humans make sense of their world. Right, right. right. That's what talking does, right? It's really, really important. And it's very different from the old idea in the age of paper, where just because of the nature of paper, a single person got to speak, and you read it, and you couldn't respond. And books are not a conversational medium. And obviously, there are advantages to books, but... And this is something, by the way, that Socrates noted you know, 2,500 years ago when he was arguing against literacy, writing things down. It was that you write something down and you cannot have a conversation with the author. Mm. So recognizing the importance of conversation. Second thing is also recognizing that the Internet is a global space. You can talk with anybody around the world, but we are all local creatures. That is, our... It's not, it's not even our set of beliefs that are relatively local, local to your nation, to your community, to your faith, to your parents. It's also just the mechanics of talking, how you have a conversation, um, how long you're allowed to talk before somebody can interrupt, how off-topic you're allowed to go, how, how funny you're allowed to be, and in what sort of humor mm-hmm. can you tease. You, know, you think you're just teasing, but somebody from another culture, which might actually just be you know, 100 miles away, or but it might be uh, 5,000 miles away, right. you're, te- you're teasing, they think you're being abusive, and you are being abusive in their culture. Right. Um, so recognizing that conversations are very delicate, and the mechanics of them are governed by local rules that, that you inhabit, you don't even recognize them. So being um, aware of that and deferential and careful and respectful and treating people with dig- dignity are all requirements simply for having a conversation. Um, if you are providing information, um, you're putting up a site, then one of the things I think to keep in mind is that in the old days when resources were constrained, if you were a library, you would filter on the way in. Right? So you would decide which books are going to make it in, which ones aren't. Um, on the Internet, it's generally both better and less expensive to include everything, put everything in. Don't decide ahead of time what mm. your users are going to be interested in because you, nobody can know what people are going to be interested right. in. Right. That's true, huh? You don't need to edit it as much. Just get it out there. Get it out there and then give them good ways of, of, of finding it. You know, um, yeah, you know, and sorting it, yeah. Uh, let the, yes, let them sort it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. Methods that they can do that easily. Uh, yes. So in a, you know, I've, I've spent about the past five years in library technology and physical libraries, which are you know I, I I love, but they have this terrible constraint, which is every book has to go on only one shelf. <laughs> and yeah. That's not how books work. That's not a natural thing for books. 
not an actual thing for all the stuff at Amazon either. That's right. Um, they, they, people think about how to cluster things differently based upon their, their needs. Um, so if you can avoid making a single choice about what category to put something in and to let somebody do a, even a complex search where they're specifying things that matter to them, but you could not have anticipated would matter to them, that's a far, far better thing to do. And that's very common on the, on the net now. But it's a very different way of thinking about how the world is organized. That's right. We were about efficiencies, huh, with paper, I guess, and, and typesetting where you had to actually set all the type. Use your words carefully. But now you're saying it can be abundant. Get everything out there and it doesn't – everything doesn't have to be in its place. I mean everything can be where it needs to be and just make it sortable, accessible. Exactly. And even the idea of thinking that things have a place. Yeah. I mean that's the problem. They don't. Um, it depends – things place – it depends upon what you are trying to do. Uh, yeah. If you're in a grocery store and they have you know the normal way of sorting, but you don't want to see anything that has gluten in it or you don't want to see anything that has salt or sugar or – they can't sort it all those ways for you. Right. Everything has to be – you know, but you can. Electronically, you can. Digitally, you can. So the information uh, world can is, is maybe in a way more fit – for the way our brain actually operates? Um, it, it well might be. Okay. Um, it has an important effect on knowledge, though, if I can bring it back to yeah. that. Because in the West, um, ever since the Greeks, and this is, I think, clearest in Aristotle, we've had the idea that to know what something is, is to know its essence, that, which is a definition. Yeah. So we are the rational animals, and birds are the feathered bipeds. You know, two-legged animals mm-hmm. have feathers, um, and that's it, that's what knowing what those things are. It's knowing the single place of things in the in the grand structure of the universe. And so, if in fact the the reason that we've had to sort things physically into single places is simply that they're physical. They can only be in one place at a time. Then maybe our idea of knowledge as finding the single place of things in the grand logic and order of the universe, maybe that idea arose from the limitations of the physical. Hmm. And now that things don't have to have a single place or a single definition or a single way of finding them, it changes our idea of what constitutes knowledge. And I think, personally, I think in a useful way. Oh, I do too. And I mean, again, it could... Yeah, thinking out of that kind of that um, constricted physical realm, all of a sudden you might be able to have a thought that can create this spark of synergy or whatever you want to call it, energy or an opportunity that hasn't necessarily existed in a in a certain kind of environment. Um, Powerful. Let's take a break and continue this discussion after the break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. David Weinberger. If you've ever heard of the book, uh, The Clue Train Manifesto, he was a co-author of that 15 or so years ago. He also um, wrote recently an article in The Atlantic, To Know But Not Understand, David Weinberger on Science and Big Data. He was interviewed there, and um, they picked his brain, quite honestly, and we're going to try to do the same thing. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, Understanding knowledge and information um, and maybe the new the new realm the new world we need to see it in stick with us we'll be right back we are caught up in your love affair and we'll never be royal Royal. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us, Dr. Uh, David Weinberger from Boston, and um, he is uh, enlightening us about, you know, information and the information age, uh, really about some of the changes we might want to be um, at least thinking about when it comes to knowledge, uh, you know, uh aggregation, assimilation, evaluation, how we go about learning, how we go about thinking in this new age. Um, And I think he's just opening up our minds. Dr. Weinberger is a senior researcher at the Berkman Center at Harvard University, and he's been a philosophy professor, a journalist, a strategic marketing consultant, internet entrepreneur, and the Franklin Fellow at the U.S. State Department. Dr. David Weinberger, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, it really is. In your your side of this, you can hear your philosophy, uh, your uh, your philosopher coming out. But it really is maybe a time and an age to start reevaluating how we see the world, how we see life. Uh, now that we have access to so much information, um, and talk talk to us just a little bit about. Um, what 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 are some of the changes you see happening? What are some of the changes that we might want to start opening our minds up for uh, in the future? Well, I, I think you you put your finger on part of it when you said that this may be a more natural way for our brains to work. And I you know I'm not I don't know anything about brains, so I, I don't know about that. But it seems to me that we are are already in. In many ways, a more nat. Despite the fact that it's the internet and it's all digital, and none of that is natural. Yeah. In some ways, I think it is. So if if you're old enough, if and you have to be pretty old at this point, and you remember <laughs> newspapers um, as the thing that you read. In the yeah, morning, every morning. Right? Every morning, that was it, or the 22 minutes of the evening news. But, so you get in the newspaper, they still work this way, the printed ones, and you read an article and you're really excited about it, uh, whatever it is. You know, it could be physics or it could be politics, it could be Kardashians, doesn't matter. <laughs> you're reading it and it's just, it's, you've got ideas, you've got questions, you want to know more. But you couldn't. You got what they put into that rectangle on, right. the, on the page, and that was, that was it. I mean, there literally was no place else you could go. You could go to the library, maybe, and, but you're not going to get the current. News. No, right. It's, it's now that would that thought that you only got what they gave you, or the encyclopedia so, that was thirty yeah. years old. Exactly, right. Britannica. Yeah, which was the you know the the, the best English <laughs> language. It came out once a generation. They would revise it, right. and you know it had sixty five thousand articles. Which is a lot. Yeah. But if you look at editions over time, it, one of the historical biographies, um, I looked at Oliver Goldsmith, you know, a British writer. Every edition, it gets shorter and shorter hmm. because they, they have new stuff they have to put in and they, right. they can't get much bigger than they are. So yeah. uh, we're throwing out information. Uh, they didn't want to do it, but they, every edition, they throw out information to make room for more. These are crazy things we would never nobody sat down and said you know it would be really good let's have a medium where you get exactly what somebody else has written and you can't ask any questions and there's no place else to turn if you become curious about Hmm. it and you know what every edition let's throw out a whole bunch of information good information but you know we don't have room this is not a good system 
and it no longer now the idea that you would read something online news or whatever and don't understand it or have an idea or want to say something uh, say say something that the world conceivably everybody in the world could read uh, it would be unbelievably frustrating oh yeah to be able to do that yeah and it, that seems to me to be a much more natural way of doing things and, and don't you think, not to interrupt, but don't you think that, um, I mean, it is impacting society today because the youngsters are doing that. They're reading everything online. They're finding out stuff. They're questioning institutions. They're questioning, you know, the need for an education. They're, uh, they're actually, they're thinking. They're not, they're not just in this lockstep model. So I don't think it's an accident, just as exactly as this is happening at the same time. Um, behavioral economics and, and the like are discovering that our brains are unreliable instruments that left to themselves our brains will uh, look for confirmation of what we already believe they will um, people tend to it actually turns out the less you know about something the more convinced you are that you're an expert and this is just, it's like optical illusions you know, it's just something your brain does because mm. the brain was not created to, to to do what we want it to do to understand the world. So it, while I completely agree with you, and I'm very enthusiastic about what's happening to knowledge on the net because people do connect and they do talk with one another and they ask questions and they, they chip in what they know, um, and it's become conversational, which I think is just a huge yeah. reward for us. At the same time, we have to be very careful that our brains aren't fooling us into believing um, falsehoods that we we like to believe. Right. That fit our bias, or yeah, yeah right. Confirmation bias. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, it's very dangerous. Um, I have a friend named Ethan Zuckerman who has a book called Digital Cosmopolitans, um, and he is he shares the. My enthusiasm for the internet. He loves the internet, but he is a pretty serious researcher, and he has good evidence that even though the internet lets us connect with anybody around the world, yeah, all around the world we're not doing that. Um, we are sticking with with our uh, yeah people who are like us, right? Oh, that's uh, true. Whatever you, however you want to define that, mm-hmm. talk. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're not broadening our horizons. We're just deepening our hole. That's a really nice way of putting it. I'd want to maybe not be that extreme about <laughs> yeah. it. But we, 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 do. we, we like what we hear, so we keep going to that more. Uh, yes. Mm. Um, and you're just warning us, be that, careful. I, I am. Um, I also think, though, that this complaint about the Internet, which I take very seriously, I think it's one of the most serious of the complaints, um, maybe... That is that we we listen to people who are like us. We hang. It, it maybe misunderstands how understanding itself works, at least as I understand it. So that um, if you, oh, I don't know, if you um, are, let's take politics. You're on the left. You're on the right. Doesn't matter whichever one. And there's a Supreme Court ruling, and it's technical, and you don't understand exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. Does it help or does it you know does it help my side? You are. Very. First of all, you're very likely to go to a site that shares your political point of view. Yeah. Um, now, in one sense, that's bad. But on the other hand, no, of course you are. 
Of course you are. You're not, you know, if you're, if you're sort of a Fox News person, you're going to go to a Fox News type of site to understand it. And if you're, uh, you know, MSNBC or whatever the other one is, um, you'll go to that side. Because understanding is contextual. Understanding takes something new and assimilates it into an existing context. And that's how understanding, that's, that's how understanding works. Yeah. It's not surprising, and I don't think it's, nece- it's, it's necessarily evil, that we hang out with people who share our beliefs and our values, because that's how we understand things. Right, right. It, so there's a benefit, but it's limiting. Yes, exactly. Both those things. Yeah. Um, so our expectations that we would all become global citizens um, from the early days of the web, uh, maybe those are unrealistic. Uh-huh. Um, it would be more more realistic to hope that we will, in addition to seeking out beliefs that are like ours and people who are like us, we will also learn how to listen to people who are not like us. Yeah. And that is a, that's a hugely important thing, but it's also really, really hard to do because you don't have the context you do, mm-hmm. to, to understand. No, and yeah, and you almost do need you need a little guidance on the way. Uh, I wish we had more time, David. This is um it's so enlightening and important of a discussion. Again, everybody go look up the Clue Train Manifesto and and the great works of uh, Dr. David Weinberger. I mean, really, uh you're a forward thinker on this and um I think it's great that we stretch our brain this way. David, thank you so much again for being with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, Folks, it's a tool. It's a great, powerful, incredible tool. And know your bias. Know your tendency. And we we need the support groups that we love to go to. We also need to be willing to stretch and look into other areas to broaden our minds as well. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, and wrap up this first hour or the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a lot of uh, interesting pressure and insight that uh, I think we could give corporate America by being a little bit more socially active, perhaps, um, I, again, I'm not I'm not big in protesting, and I'm not big in scaring him. You know, companies that we're going to not do any work with you anymore because you whatever, whatever. But we've seen recently, even organizations like Walmart who pulled away uh, some or changed some of their gun sales and their policies on gun on selling guns and ages certain ages that wouldn't be able to buy a gun at uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart. I mean, that's I think that's smart, right? It's smart business. But again, it impacts because there are people now that are mad at Walmart that won't go in and buy their gear before they go camping because Walmart has taken such a stand. But um, there there are some things that uh, I think we can take too far. And one of the 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 areas that I, I really – I don't know what it is, but I think doing this show um, and talking about a lot of things that – that that are hard, that are difficult topics, or frustrating to uh, to people out there. I've I've started to feel a little bit of um, the frustration that that each and every one of us can have every day, trying to deal with topics and issues 
that are exhausting topics and issues that really just slowly, I don't know, take the wind out of our cells. And so I wanted to figure out if there was a way that we could somehow be better, try harder. And so I put together some rules that we that I, I want to follow to uh, to not be so toxic socially. And I there's about five different uh, I, I call them habits, toxic habits that are stressing us out as a society. The first is overall all of us, by the way, not just corporate America and not just our president, all of us have this weird obsession of focusing on the me, not the we. We um, we don't even believe in our institutions anymore. We don't believe in our government anymore. We don't believe in corporations. We don't believe in universities. Every one of these these supposed institutions, religion, we're starting to pull away from and feel like we don't even need this uh, this these institutions. The, those institutions used to create the we in this country. And now it seems like we're very focused on the me or the individual. And again, I get it. Every corporation, every organization, every religion, everybody can can also, you know, lose their vision and lose their their sight about the the individual. But we got to be careful about that. Another uh, another habit that I think a lot of us have taken on is that we're so easily offended. I don't know what it is, and maybe it's simply we don't have the protections we used to. We, we've got a lot more information than ever, but everybody has a chip on their shoulder. Everybody has you know, a grudge, something that they're mad about and something that kind of their pet peeve that the minute that thing is played, you play that, and it might be guns, it might be whatever, but we have the pet peeve. we got to watch out and start maybe instead of being so easily offended, just recognize there is another side to every story. And uh, it might be good that you at least learn the other side um, and and figure out why you really are so reactive to an idea. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything that you're reacting to with really strong reaction. Remember, that says so much more about you than anything else. Also, we have another habit that I think is kind of toxic is the fact that we all have an opinion about everything. (laughs) And the funny thing about our opinions, we feel really strong about something, and a lot of us don't know anything about it. You can have a really strong opinion and still be just grossly misinformed. All of us. I'm not saying you. I'm saying me. All of us. But be careful when you're really opinionated about something. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people talk about their opinion and all they knew were the talking points that came from that one side of the argument. They hadn't even studied the argument. And I think part of it is because we all can watch television and radio and we have all of these people, even we on the show, we have opinions and we're not informed on everything we have an opinion about, right? We're not. Um, But when we sometimes, the people that we're watching on TV, they actually are informed. They actually have read some of them, by the way, not all of them, let's be real. But they, they have a little bit more informed opinions um, some, by the way, are just biased and informed to one side of the opinion. But be careful having an opinion that's not that's that's not balanced. Not that you have to believe it in a balanced way, but you have to have at least studied the issue in a balanced way to really have a meaningful opinion. I believe. So be careful. Slow down. Sometimes bite your lip. It might be better. Also, blaming others for our misery. We're we're big into having someone else to blame for why our life is a mess. 
Be careful, folks. The minute we keep blaming everyone else for our misery, it just makes us all miserable. In fact, we all have to stay miserable just to stay the victim, right? Just some habits. Habits, toxic habits, if we're not careful, that will stress us all out. And uh, if, if you notice you have any of those habits, just know that people around you might be feeling some stress because of it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we live in a day and age when at some point... You, you have to do your own thinking, right? You have to, at some point, not just take my word for it or listen to the party line or assume that your party, whatever political persuasion is setting you up to succeed or even the talking heads that you love to listen to. Because like what I'm finding out doing this show, I, I didn't know much about Healthcare. I didn't know much about single payer systems or any or, you know, the free market HMO model. I didn't know anything about it. I was never interested in it because I'm just an average dude. And the reality of what I'm finding is the more I study, the more I learn, the more we have guests on like Jerry, um, we are woefully uninformed. We have no clue what we're talking about. But if I brought this up at dinner with, you know, my family at Thanksgiving, I, everyone would have an opinion. But none of them would have the data that we just heard from Jerry. None of them would know that admin costs on healthcare go up 10% and that overall the costs of healthcare go up 6%, right? And so when inflation only goes up 2% or 3%, so something's not right here and nobody has the data, but we all talk as if we do. So why don't we all, instead of just spewing the company line or throwing out what one you know news channel is saying and why don't we just open up our minds and get actually informed? So I challenge you, all of us, to go be more informed. It doesn't ha- – whatever you learn in all of your information, but seek out some healthy, neutral information and gather the data and then formulate an opinion. And you'll be amazed, I think, what happens when we actually have an informed and formulated opinion. Power. That's where power comes. And an understanding. Instead of just – you'll see why the quagmire exists because people keep speaking without information. They keep using talking points handed down by insurance companies and political parties. Let's just get informed. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. It's a wave of anxiousness, worry, nervousness that's overtaking. I think so many of us, 40 million people now suffering from anxiety and worry. Just a a little bit of advice that I'm seeing a lot just with my own clients is this simple idea of quit passing this down or quit passing it down to your children without doing something about it. Somebody needs to stop the pattern. And um, again, anxiety, there's there's definitely, you know, we know that there's a genetic component of it that we do hand down. But as we just learned from Dr. Reed Wilson, there are so many things we can learn to do by paying attention to our emotions, by recognizing the worry, by not just fighting it and not wanting it and putting our head in the sand. We also need to learn to fix, to adjust, to learn to to manage the emotional side, but the options To me, it really – and the metaphor I use with my clients is when you have anxiety, you're like a Ferrari in a world full of Chevys. Everyone around you seems to be handling, you know, the four-wheeling adventure so well, and you keep overheating and spinning out, and you don't get any traction, and you just keep struggling. 
it it doesn't mean you're not a great car. You're a Ferrari for heaven's sakes. Sakes. It's just you may not be in the perfect situation for you. So you've got to start adjusting. You've got to shift differently. You've got to pit. You've got to recognize what aren't the situations or prepare yourself better for those situations so that uh, they don't sneak up on you and you lose all traction and all hope. It's it's some pretty basic skills. But again, I'm not saying you're to blame if your kids have it. That's not the point. The point is you as an adult can start to learn how better to handle yours. And as you learn better, you'll have better ways and methods to teach your children. If you have anxiety and worry, you can no longer pretend like you don't. You can no longer just hide away. If you have children, you need to teach your children how to overcome it by modeling it and by being a great example of learning how to drive that Ferrari that uh, you have and now that your child has. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring, um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting, what do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of boring, being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven, unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing? And then once we can become aware of that, the second step is to accept it. You're bored. You've got you've got this state of, uh, you know, you you really literally, as she put it, are irritably restless now. And that might make it so you don't love your job. You're struggling with your family. You wonder why you married the person you married. Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings. We can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you love stronger and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, I teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, 
spirit is is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings. Or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires, direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. 
So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico. And we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. Do you remember the Dust Bowl? You know, in the Midwest. Um, the Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. You're, you know... Economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope. And he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act. And I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope. Right. The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, and with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. 
And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like, we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the You have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words: steward, agent, options, right, pathways, and hope. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know this whole battle that we see going on in uh, in politics and really in life reminds me of a, a lesson I learned back in the day when I used to work uh, for the for Stephen Covey. And uh, he talked a lot about character ethic, he would call it, versus personality ethic. And he, what he did is he had studied um, a lot of uh, thought leaders, a lot of people um, that, that, you know, were foundational to our country, foundational to our, um, our way of living here in the United States. And he found out that when they would discuss success and becoming successful, for years, for generations, we saw most of the success literature – for about the first 150 years of our country, would would say that you were successful if you if you could somehow grow character and have a character ethic, things like integrity, humility, simplicity, fairness, you know, modesty, love, courage, basic principles of character are the things that would drive you to have the most success. And um, then for about the last 50, now maybe about the last 80 or so years of our country. Uh, the 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 ethic the 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 way of living behind finding success has changed from character to more of what we would call personality ethic, where your appearance, your image, your look, um, you know, your ability to control and manipulate your way through and maneuver your way through life, that really is seen today. As, a, as the key to being a successful person, not your integrity, not your hard work, not lo- your loyalty, not all of these other principles, but a personality ethic. And the problem is that we're starting to run into is now we're finding out that uh, we might be swinging the pendulum back because we are tired of not being able to trust anything, not being able to understand, uh, having to, to tell, you know, you know, it's it's you know, sure, sure, the person won the election, but we we question this about the person because people now can get elected. You can become famous. You can win a lot of money or make a lot of money and get a lot of money 
with no integrity, with no no work ethic even. It can just come to you. So it, it seems to be um, playing out. Stephen Covey's great worry that we have to make sure we continually teach this character ethic. And so instead of just sitting there and bemoaning the fact of, of every election you have to deal with or the political struggles you have, is there a way that you can be teaching your family about character ethic? Character ethic used to be natural because you were raised on a farm and, you know, raised in an agrarian society where you reap what you sow, you, you know, you, you receive what you work for. But now we live in a place and a time where your personality is enough to win it for you. But personality eventually will break down with a lack of character. And so let's get back to the character ethic. And what can you do? Simply believe in it. Teach it. Hold it accountable. Uh, win or die by your character and, and maybe give up the, the politics of personality and the manipulations of personality ethic instead of just trusting in character, integrity, humility, some of the old-fashioned traits. I know they seem old-fashioned, but in the end, they also are – uh, they're, they're successful long-term. And we might be creating some, some monsters by simply allowing personality to succeed so much. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. Welcome back, friends. You know, sometimes what you say just isn't enough in relationships. Have you ever been in a conversation where you thought you said the perfect thing but still didn't dodge the glares, tears, or screams of the other person? In relationships, it's not just about what you say but how you say it that will save you from sleeping on the couch. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Bauckham, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Utah. And he says that psychological practitioners and researchers have long known that the way that partners talk about and discuss problems has important implications for the health of their relationship. He's here today to talk about some recent research that he's been doing that has found that your tone of voice is as important as what you say. Dr. Bauckham, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. You bet. Honored to have you on. This is, um, to me, uh, just one of my favorite topics, communication between uh, people. And really, I guess in your research, the tone, the tone matters as much as the words. That's right. That's right. Um, Yeah, what we've uh, been wanting to understand is um, when you look at couples trying to handle problems and you see them coming in for therapy, um, you know, really trying to figure out uh, what it is um, that's not going well and how to help people uh, recognize for themselves what needs to be different. Um, and, and what we've been finding is uh, exactly what you mentioned um, uh, just a second ago, that it's uh, it's really a combination of things. It's what you're saying, it's how you say it, um, and it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's both uh, how that comes across to your partner and, and what they make of it. What tone is... You know, it turns the turns the game around. Is it is it a tone of anger? Is it a and and how do you measure the tone? Sure. So um, what we've been looking at is uh, most specifically, we've looked at a number of things, but the things we've looked at uh, in most detail uh, are, is what we hear is pitch. Um, so how high or low somebody's voice is, um, 
And this has been measured a whole bunch of different ways, um, and that's actually part of why we're so interested in this particular part of tone. Um, but we use a uh, we use a computer program to do this. It's it's one that actually anybody can get a hold of. It's called Pratt, P-R-A-A-T, um, and it's uh, it's a um, computer program that uh, returns what's called the fundamental frequency. So it's um, it's just the frequency of somebody's voice. It's how fast their vocal cords vibrate, and that that creates what we hear as pitch. Hmm. Um, and so what we've found uh, having to do with pitch. Oh, are you there, Dr. Bauckham? We've lost you for oh, a second. Oh, sorry. oh sorry, sorry, we lost you. There you go. Um, yeah, so what we found actually is that pitch cre- uh, communicates a lot about emotional intensity uh, or engagement or kind of overall arousal, that kind of a thing. Um, and it's, it's the kind of thing where... Um, there is no one particular answer. Um, you know, there's one, no one right way. There's no one wrong way mm. um, to uh, to communicate uh, in terms of pitch. But it's really context dependent. So um, we've looked at things like um, when couples present for treatment, and these are these are really distressed couples um, who are kind of at the end of their rope. Um, and, and coming into treatment for, uh, for one um, last-ditch effort, what you find um, is when you ask them to talk about their problems, um, it's actually healthy for people to be emotionally invested, emotionally engaged. Um, you know, if you're, um, if you're talking about a problem, then really this is kind of your last-ditch effort to, to improve your relationship. The, um, it's it's doesn't bode well for your relationship if you're not seeing any emotionality come across in mm. those conversations. Yeah, because that communicates uh, like indifference or that they're not in. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it's resignation. It's it's maybe having given up or um, you know gotten to a place where people feel hopeless, um, and that's contagious. It you know the when you see folks um, in that uh, in that kind of place prior to beginning treatment. Um, they really have a difficult time uh, doing well um, over the long haul. Hmm. It, wow, what a really um, – because I do a lot of work with couples teaching them how to communicate more effectively. And, I mean, uh-huh. that that tone is if, – if all you could do is just speak with tone, uh-huh. it would be fascinating because a lot of times I see um, somebody might speak with a higher pitch and a faster rate – Yep. And yep. and it creates more intensity, and then you can almost see their partner start reacting to that intensity, and then it's almost like they catch that level of tone, and they'll up it. Oh, yeah? Yep. And then all of a sudden, you can just see the tone go up. Is that what you yep. saw in your research? Yeah, we do. Um, we, we've looked at that in a number of different ways, um, and couples who are coming in because they're having difficulty in their marriage with the marriage per se, and we've also looked at couples... Um, who are coming in for treatment for other reasons. Um, the one that's coming to mind specifically is a study we did where um, couples are struggling uh, with um, uh, the wife and the couple having breast cancer. Hmm. Um, and it, it uh, again, it you know, it um, what you're saying about people catching the tone um, that absolutely happens. It's it's something that happens. It looks like actually for a lot of different reasons. Um, there's some really nice basic research on uh, voice tone. 
um, actually that um, looks at its evolutionary roots. Why, why is it that we do this? Uh, you know, where does it come from? Um, and it turns out that it's, it's a really basic part of communicating uh, that a lot of social species do. Um, and the, the reason that people think this happens is that um, when, you're, when you're thinking about um, the ability to communicate distress uh, related to survival, um, an auditory cue, hey, something dangerous is happening, uh, can be communicated over a much larger distance. Mm. Uh, than uh, a visual cue. So it, it turns out that uh, a lot of monkeys, pigs, all sorts of social species do this. Um, and what you're saying about it being a very basic part of communicating, this is actually true um, for us as humans from very early on. So um, it's one of the primary ways that um, babies and parents communicate before babies have language. That's true, huh? Because, you, yeah, you might not even use words, it's really more about your tonal quality. Are you a higher pitch? What's, what's the pitch? That's right. That's, That's right. It's That's so right. true. I, we, we just had our grandbaby over, and uh, you don't even need to use words. You just, you just <laughs> right. make funny tones. That's right. That's right. That babbling, that, that's called infant-directed speech, and that's actually a really important part of engaging with a little one. Hmm. Um, you know, it's one of the things that is not present um, in things like postpartum depression. Um, tone tends to be much flatter, uh, uh, particularly for moms, and that um, you know that looks to have downstream consequences. Babies develop cognitively a little bit slower, um, and part of the thinking is is there some of that uh, really important social engagement is lacking. Wow! Yeah, because maybe yeah, maybe it doesn't draw the attention out of the baby like it needs to. Yeah, uh, and with couples, um, you know, about these two studies, um, you're absolutely right. You know, when you've got a couple talking about distress, it does tend to cycle um, very quickly. You know, one person being aroused, evoked, uh, and the other responding in kind. Um, mm. And uh, we've seen that happen um, in a couple of different ways when when couples have kind of a shared problem um, uh, you know, in their relationship, um, that that cycling is, um, you know, can result in escalation and uh, a conflict getting much bigger, um, really rapidly. Um, and that's that's um, again is is not great for couples. Uh, you know, people wind up um, often saying things they don't mean to say or saying them in, in ways that are harsher yeah. uh, than they intended. And maybe even wondering, how did we get here? Um, let's, Absolutely. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Bauckham. Um Brian, I want to come back and have you talk to us about, can you learn this as an adult? Is this something we can learn? And is it gender specific? Is one of us better at reading the tone of another? Um, stick with sure. us. Interesting stuff. More with Dr. Brian Bauckham from the University of Utah uh, professor of clinical psychology at the university there and uh, understanding the power of tone in your voice when it comes to your relationships. Stick with us, helping you love stronger folks right here on the Matt Townsend show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Brian Bauckham from uh, the University of Utah. He is a an assistant professor of clinical psychology there and has been uh, talking to us about a recent study that he's been doing and other studies around voice and tone and the impact it has on you know getting through conflict and, and strengthening relationships or the impact it would have on a conversation even. And uh, Dr. Bauckham, welcome back. We're so uh, appreciative of you being here. Oh, thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, talk to us about, the. Are, are there certain tonal qualities that are better for relationships than others? So I don't know that there's a particular tone. It just depends, like, yeah, like you were saying. It depends. Um, you know, the, the flip side to the cycling that we were talking about just a second ago, uh, when talking about relationship problems, when we've... Um, looked at issues, uh, couples talking about uh, breast cancer and concerns about breast cancer, um, you actually find a very different pattern, um, which is that the um, that uh, when men and women are, are talking about this issue, men um, really have a, a, a tendency to want to stay calm. Hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, to the to the extent actually uh, that that's possible, that looks to be really helpful uh, to be able to talk about um, you know really scary issues, mortality, sexuality, um, you know, unconcerned uh, about what this is going to mean, huh. uh, you know, not knowing what the prognosis is, um, and so so in that case, um, it actually looks like it's very helpful. Uh, for the partner who is experiencing breast cancer to be able to talk about it in a really evocative way and mm. for their partner to hear it and be responsive, um, but but to be able to stay in a range that, that does look calm. Wow. Um, but but, so, then, but yeah. then I would assume, I mean, I could almost hear some women saying, y- y- this seems like this doesn't even bother you because <laughs> you're, yes. you're so calm yes. about this. You should be, why aren't you, why aren't you falling apart? That's right. That's right. And so that's, I think that's, um, you know, what you were really alluding to at the beginning. Um, the idea that it's really the combination of both things. Mm. So Yeah, you have to um, say what you're feeling too, right? That's right. That's right. And so in the, in the kind of therapy um, that, that I do and that we do here over at the U, um, that's one of the things that we really work on. We work on uh, one of the big things that we try to help couples do is this thing we call empathic joining. Um, which is which is the ability to communicate emotion in a way that really facilitates being together um, and what's being said. Um, and the the thing that's so tricky about it is is that it really um, it requires both partners, both spouses, to be willing to be vulnerable, mm. um, to open up about um, you know scary emotions or emotions that feel uh, that can feel threatening or intimidating, um, but to be able to be in it together. Uh, is is one of the things that we really focus on. Which is uh, an answer to the question that I guess it is learnable. It's something we can sit down together and learn. I mean, it might, you know, it might be humbling. You might need to be super vulnerable, but you can learn to kind of uh, uh, to harmonize and and can you know join up our emotional conversations and our tone. Absolutely, absolutely. I think so. Um, and, uh, yeah, so with, with tone, um, uh, one of the reasons that this is one of the particular parts that we study is it's something that we can all hear. Um, and we're all actually very good at being able to say, yes, I can recognize my own tone going up, somebody else's tone going Mm. up, all of that kind of stuff. 
Um, what I think is more challenging is, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of the back and forth. Yeah. Um, that happens so automatically and it happens so quickly um, that, that, like you were saying earlier, it's, I think it's really easy for couples to get to the point where they wonder, how did we get here? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, seemed, it felt like it started so innocently and all of a sudden we're, um, you know, this feels really intense. What, what happened? And it may not have even seemed like you may have noticed the tone, I guess, maybe on like a subconscious level and yeah. responded to it and not even, it not even been intentional. Like, you didn't even notice that's what you were responding to, but you just knew something wasn't right. And then that, then you got to go somehow and sort out what caused the, you know, the side street. Why did we take that side street? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And that's one of the ways that we try to teach, um, you know, sort of a, I guess you could call it a form of emotional intelligence Mm. um, in communicating is... um, uh, you know, trying to help couples recognize those circumstances that pull for that kind of really rapid escalation um, going down the side street to help them recognize that um, and to interrupt the tendency to get into that um, kind of automatic, um, you know, back and forth kind of a thing uh, so that they can, can have the conversation they want to have and more effectively deal with problems. Yeah. Hey, uh, we've got about a minute left. What would you say for the rest of us kind of, you know, loafers when it comes to (laughs) voice and tone, what would you say that we should be focusing on? If we want to be an attentive partner, uh, you know, an effective listener, what's like one thing that we could do today to improve our ability to hear the tone and manage the tone? You know, I think the the two things that I would say are one um, is just to think about um, you know, when you're trying to manage your tone, just to remember that whether uh, you have kind of a, a high tone or a low tone, um, or you're even trying to control your tone, that communicates information, and it's information that we're aware of. Hmm. Um, so even if you're trying really hard uh, to contain it, sometimes it can sound kind of brittle, and, and people pick up on that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, um, I, I think... Um, it, Again, part of what we try to communicate in awareness of those situations is just some self-awareness. Um, this is happening now. Uh, you know, my partner is communicating something. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think part of my encouragement, too, would, would be um, just to try to have some awareness of that. Mm-hmm. It turns out that that can often be really successful in helping p- people break the automatic cycle and just slow down a little bit. Yeah, I love that. It seems to put us in a higher brain, maybe the prefrontal cortex when we're actually thinking it out instead of just Absolutely. reacting it out. Interesting. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate appreciate uh, this insight. Again, Dr. Brian Bauckham, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Utah. Thanks again for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. You bet. And great tone. That's awesome. I mean, it's so it's so subtle, Brian, but it's perfect. Good job. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Dicker. You bet. Awesome stuff. Tone, man. Who would have known? Who would have known? You got to pay attention to the tone. Well, I think we all did. <laughs> You've all had somebody say, uh, what did you say? Can you say that again? That didn't come out quite right. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're... They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits. Okay, and more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. Twenty percent of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past, and that dreams can foretell the future. Not interesting. One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? I mean, like they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, 
But um, it's try try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little coach's corner for you here. Isn't it interesting that the, the strengths become the weaknesses? So uh, over evolution of the, ma- of the body, we, we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now all of a sudden that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. (laughs) Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much Sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know it. I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get, you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so As the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries, or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science may be there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future i mean and a lot of the people are god-fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something but god also gave you science right he also gave you you know insight the ability to learn and to read and to think he gave you choice and agency so if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. 
You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the Coach's Corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally and, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking. You might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's it is a plague, quite honestly, and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things – there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep – or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits, um, what are their top, you know, eight, you know, positive ways that they see themselves, and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that that they in their in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really they feel this way. Uh, they they and and basically, this couple had been arguing about a situation. And um, we did this activity, and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, – one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait – the female's top trait was um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't 
get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Make sense? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You've heard of a grammar Nazi? I have. New research out. So if you know a grammar Nazi, pay attention. This story is critically important. Grammar Nazi, you know, someone who constantly points out your typos, your grammatical errors, the things that they don't like Mm -hmm. that you're saying. Um, According to a latest study, um, these type of people are generally less open and more likely to judge you for your mistakes more negatively uh, than anyone else. And so the research shows we don't like these people and on average these people aren't seen positively. They're not likable. It seems interesting like, duh. You're constantly correcting people. Mm-hmm. That's not something – an attribute people are going to think, that's positive. I no, like that. I'm just trying to help you. I need that in my daily life. Your grammar is horrible. The study was carried out by researchers at the University of Michigan and it is the first to show that an individual's personality traits can actually determine how one reacts to typos and grammatical errors. They found that extroverted people are much more likely to overlook typos and grammatical errors, whereas introverted people were more likely to judge the person – who make such errors more negatively because of them. Hmm. These people are, they might just be introverted and they go in their mind and they go to their happy place and they're like, oh, I, there's a correction. I could, I could share my insight and help fix this person's horrible grammar. <laughs> and I next, have skills to share. Let me show you. So this may be defining the battle between the, um, the introvert and the extrovert. The introvert is silently critiquing and the extrovert is just spewing language errors. (laughs) Well, there comes a point where if you're trained to look for errors and you see them and you can point them out and you can see something's misspelled, it annoys people. Things must be fixed. No. You know, so they want to to correct and help other people get to that point in life where they can fix these problems. No, just shush. They're helping. Keep it in. Keep it in. You're an introvert. Don't say anything. I'm an introvert. Nobody believes that. Right. I don't, I don't critique people's grammar, though. As you're standing in front of mass crowds giving public speeches several times a month. Mm-hmm. And on the radio. And then I sit alone in my car in heaven. Just decompress? Listening to Barry Manilow. <sighs> well, Barry's good. Life is good. Life is good. When it comes down to it, we all got to get better, right? The goal of the show is to help you see the good in the world, learn the latest and greatest research, and do something with it. 